What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these ND Hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. So MakerPad, for people who don't know, is really the best place to learn how to build apps and websites without code. So if you have no idea how to code, you could go to MakerPad, and I don't know how long it would take you to learn, but you would eventually be able to build something like, I don't know, your own like Airbnb clone without knowing anything about how to code. Is that right? Yeah, yeah that's one way to, to put it. Yeah, you could do it in minutes. You can learn how to do something, a quick automation to save you hours of work or building website, building Airbnb clone, building app, that sort of stuff. Which is obviously world changing because I don't know how many people in my life who've been like, Cortland, if only you will build me this app, you know, I can, yeah. you know, achieve this vision or make this much money, et cetera. I'm like, sorry, like this costs a lot of money and I'm not going to do it for free. But now those people don't have to bug me. They can just go to MakerPad and learn how to do it on their own. And uh, I think when I talked to you, you would, you've been running MakerPad for like, I don't know, like six months or something, solo founder, and you'd already done like $100,000 in revenue and your expenses were like nothing. It was like 5% expenses or something. And so it was like 95% profit and you were a super happy dude. <laughs> and you hadn't even quit your job yet. You're like, I'm still waiting to quit my job. I think you quit like maybe a month or two after the podcast. Now, less than two years later, maybe like a year and a half later, you are at a $400,000 revenue run rate. You've got multiple employees. And you just recently announced that your company was bought by Zapier, which is kind of the premier no-code tool that people use to automate tasks and connect different apps between each other on the web. So congratulations. That's a, it's a lot of progress and very little time. Yeah, yeah. It's It's been a bit of a roller coaster i don't think it feels like that at the time it doesn't feel like oh this is all going really quick <laughs> but yeah when you look back on it yeah it was like 18 months of me actually going full-time and yeah we've been acquired and couldn't be more excited with the outcome really i think it's huge and obviously we'll get into all the whys and the details and stuff but it's just like a credit to the movement in general has been growing and growing and we've been lucky that we've sort of been at the forefront of that community. There's something about being like the entry level option. Paul Graham wrote a good blog post recently and talking about kind of like different things that he's learned from things that he worked on. And he said, there's this idea that the low end eats the high end and that it's good to be the entry level option, even though that's less prestigious than being the high end option. Because if you're not the entry level option, somebody else will be, and they will eventually squash you against the ceiling, um, which means that you should be kind of like wary about prestige. And when I think about MakerPad, like you're the entry level option. If someone knows zero about no code, if they know nothing, they're gonna go to you. And that means like you have a lot of power because like that's where the most people are. And like you can kind of sort of direct them. You can say, hey, you should go use Zapier, you should go use Airtable. And it makes a lot of sense for a company like Zapier to wanna like own MakerPad because <laughs> they wanna be the entry level option. They wanna be able to direct brand new people to where they wanna go, ideally to Zapier. So it's kind of cool strategically to look at like how that's worked for you. And Paul Graham said like that was kind of the biggest lesson that he learned that helped him start. Y Combinator and Vioweb, his uh, company before that. Like Y Combinator is like the entry level option for startup founders. And like, yeah, Sequoia and Andreessen Horowitz might be more prestigious, but at the end of the day, like if YC like disinvited them from demo day or something, <laughs> it would be kind of crappy for them because they wouldn't be able to take a look at all these like really cool early stage companies. And so uh, you're, you know, in a lot of ways, like the YC for no code. So when I was first doing MakePad, it was like, oh, just finding out about these tools and just figuring out what you could do, like, pushing it to an Airbnb clone or whatever. And then I sort of made the mistake of thinking that everyone was learning at the pace that I was learning stuff. So if I'd find out something new about Webflow and Airtable together, I would 
teach that and put that video out. And then it was really clear that like, oh wait, there's more and more people coming into the no-code space at level zero. They don't know what you're talking about with multi-level CMS items and referencing things through Airtable and things like that. It's just like, what do I need to get my foot in the door? What's my first step? How do I first do that bit? So I pinged Wade, the CEO of Zapier. Is he your is he your boss now? Do you report to him? Are there intermediaries between the two of you now? Like, how does that work? He's my boss. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's a CEO. I'm not sure what I would call myself now, but I like I run Makerpad still. So Makerpad is staying independent, like it's staying at his own company within Zapier. So essentially, Makerpad, a Zapier company, much like I think you guys are, right? Indie Hackers, a Stripe company. Very similar to me. I get a masterclass of like how to be a CEO from Wade, who's raised hardly any money, gone from the YC to like a $5 billion company, 400 employees, all completely remote. I couldn't think of a like a better person to be like holding my hand through how to run a company. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And your situation is, it's hard for me to think of somebody who has a more similar situation to what I have at Stripe. So I ran any hackers for about like nine months, eight months, got acquired by Stripe, talked to Patrick, the CEO, just a whole bunch and I had like the exact same thoughts. Like, oh, cool. I get to learn from, you know, Patrick Collison. He's running, running this really amazing company. There are no intermediaries between us, but I'm super independent. Stripe isn't telling me what to do. And it's like, you're like the exact same situation. So I have a bunch of questions for you based on my experience. First of all, does it feel weird to have a boss having not had a boss for the last year and a half, two years? Like, what is that like for you? So it's kind of like, I'm not sitting with Wade behind me and thinking, oh, that, that's my boss. I'd better be making myself look busy type stuff. I, I semi-know what I'm doing and where I'm heading with Makerpad and the team. It's just sort of like, almost like having a mentor that, or if you had like a really close investor friend who was invested in you and had done it all before and like done it really well before, you could just sort of ask them, hey, does this seem right to you? Like, what would you do in this situation? On paper, I feel like I have a boss. In reality, I feel the same way as you. Like, I don't have a boss. I'm kind of doing all the same things I was doing before I joined Stripe. No one's really telling me what to do. Like somebody on Indie Hackers the other day ask like, hey, how come Indie Hackers doesn't have like a Gumroad revenue option? And then someone else is like, it's because they're owned by Stripe. That's where they only have Stripe. I had to come in and be like, no, no one at Stripe has ever told me to build anything for the website. It's 100% me just doing whatever I want. And there's a lot of trust there. And so it doesn't feel like you have a boss. And I think you use the word investor. That's kind of what it feels like to me. It feels like Stripe is invested in Indie Hackers. And it feels like Zapier is invested in Makerpad, which is a whole different kind of relationship where like now I feel like this pressure to like do right by my investors. I don't want to let them down. I don't want to make them feel like it wasn't a good acquisition. Is that the same thing as having a boss? Like, I don't know. Like I've literally never had a boss before, but I definitely feel like, you know, some amount of pressure. And I don't know how things are set up with you at Zapier. You know, maybe you have milestones you want to hit, or maybe you have goals you want to reach. Like I assume they didn't just buy, you know, MakerPad and say, keep doing you, let's not talk about it. But I would assume that like, if you're in my situation, like there might come some day where you're like, you know what? I do feel a lot of pressure externally to hit these goals that maybe you wouldn't, you know, maybe on your own, you'd feel like you have completely different goals and it'd be easier to breathe easier because there's really nobody to disappoint besides yourself. It was a complete opposite for me. I felt like when I was just running MakerPad before, it was you at the helm of everyone else. Like there's people relying on you. There's customers relying on you. There's partners relying on you. I'm relying on myself. Like the no code movement of everyone else is sort of relying on me to do well with Makepad and make the right decisions and do the right things. And there's just so many decisions to make as running a company. And I keep on saying to a few people who've asked, 
I don't think I'm delirious. I think just tech Twitter in general or startup Twitter is like, oh yeah, I'm going to start a company and one day it'll be like a public company. I'm like, do you have any idea how different a company is at like so many different stages? When it's just you, great, that's fine. Like it's just you hacking away and it's like a side project you got to try and get to work and there's plenty of those people on Indie Hackers. And then when you get to your first employee, it's sort of like two friends hacking away at something and then you get to five employees, you're like, holy shit, this is a team. And then you're like, 10 people, you're thinking, wait, what the fuck am I doing? I've got to like have team meetings and one-on-ones with people. And it's there must be such a small percentage of people who have the skills to either learn or just like have that in them to start a company from zero and then grow it all the way up to like, all the way through those buckets of team, 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people, 10 million in revenue, 100 million in revenue, like... It seems like an impossible task unless you're like a very small amount of people. And I think fair enough that lots of people have that dream or have that like drive to get there. But I think when you, in, if you look at what you want to do and how you want to do it, I think it does take some looking at yourself to say, am I the person to do that? Because I think it's okay that not everyone is. And I think for me, I was like, for MakerPad to be what it could be, I'm going to need some help here. Not necessarily just help from, we need an amazing team. It's like, we need someone or something that has done this before. I don't want to necessarily go and ask for VC money, pretend I'm trying to build a billion dollar company and that I'm the person to do that. What I need is like a long-term partner that's going to help guide me through some of these steps and let me screw up a couple of times and like guide us through the, the good stuff too. So yeah, when this sort of happened with chatting to Wade and exploring this as potential. I was just like, this seems like the exact perfect thing that I was looking for. So in a lot of ways, it's like, you felt like you had the weight of the world on your shoulders because you're in this sort of like very important position at the core of the no code movement. And you see all these like crazy, ridiculous outcomes and lots of people with like the Steve Jobs complex or they think it's going to be so easy and they're the chosen one. And it turns out like you feel much more comfortable in a situation where you're actually working with somebody who has done that to be able to get to that goal. I think about this a lot, actually. Like if we if we were living like primitive humans lived in like a small tribe, you know, like you might be impressed by other people who are really good at like thatching roofs or really good at making a spear or, you know, or cooking or whatever. But like, there's not that many people, you know, it's like a hundred people or something to be impressed by. And like, you're probably going to be pretty good at something. But now we live in this crazy connected society where everybody's on Twitter, everybody can search Google, anybody can watch TV. And like the most impressive people are not like one in a hundred now. They're like one in seven billion. And it's really hard not to compare yourself to that. And it's also really hard to even fathom like how good that person must be to be good enough to get on your radar. And so it's really easy to think, you know, misjudge and say, oh, I need to be as good as these people, not really realizing like how crazy of a task that is. And it's also really easy to just feel like shit all the time because you're comparing yourself to people who like you really shouldn't compare yourself to. So I think it's very wise for you to want like a mentor. When I said it before, where it felt like before when MakerPad was just semi-independent with we had some investors but it was like we've got to make this work for them and for like the no code movement and all this sort of stuff and take that weight on but no one's really applying that pressure other than yourself it's probably more of an ego thing of like ah i fucked it up i had something going it was sort of working in these ways and not these ways and that, that was down to me that i messed that up yeah we're always experimenting so it was just like constant experimentation the whole time i mean i'll tell you my perspective which is that 
no one's done this before. No one has ever built like the premier no code community that's going to usher us into the future. Like there's no one who knows what the answer is. And people who've done it before in other arenas, like I've talked to some very impressive, very successful people. And like, you know, what, what would you do with indie hackers? And like, they're throwing out the same ideas as literally everybody else. So I'll, I'll keep tabs on what happens with MakerPad, but it'll be super interesting to see like how joining Zapier helps because I, I truly don't believe anybody has the answers, you know, like you're not doing a, you know, you're not doing like, oh, I'm going to do a B2B SaaS company where there's like a giant playbook and a thousand people have done this before. You know, you're like pioneering a completely new space that like, quite frankly, no one can even say what it's going to look like five or 10 years from now. It's like impossible to predict, but I, I'm sure you have like some sort of vision. And I'm just curious, like, let's say you do do everything right. What do you hope MakerPad is? What does Zapier hope that MakerPad is? If they buy your company, assuming like, you know, they're really investors, they're not buying you for where you are today. They're buying you for what you can become. Like, what's the grand vision? The thing that Wade and I both definitely aligned ourselves on was like, we hope that no code is like not a thing in five years. I hope that no code just sort of fits in or what we call no code today sort of fits in the democratization of software development. It is the thing I think that democratizes it to the point of, we don't have to talk about code versus no code anymore. We talk about software development as a whole, no code is probably that first rung on the ladder. And writing actual code is probably the very top end, the more specialist, highly skilled stuff. So that's like something that we both, like Zapier is more democratization of automation and we are democratization of software development. And there's a huge overlap, if not like completely overlap with those things. How I'm in this position is because I chose to not listen to anyone when they said learn to code or find a technical co-founder. I just was not willing to say, okay, yeah, that's what I'll do. I did just the complete opposite when everyone was like, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> like, this is not the way you're supposed to do stuff. The no code piece for me has just allowed me to start a company, build a company, sell a company, all while pushing the same move, like the same thing that empowered me to do that in the first place. So like, I'm not gonna ever stop beating this drum, I don't think. So yeah. I talk to a lot of people who have like the same, I don't know if you can call it like a contrarian streak where they're just going against the grain intentionally, but it's like, it's more like they don't even care what the grain is. Tobias Van Schneider, one of the lead designers at Spotify for a long time, like just brilliant designer and now like indie hacker and founder. And like, he would like make all these apps that were just like, oh, I hate what the design community is doing. Like he made this cool weather app where everybody was making these beautifully designed weather apps. And he just made like a super under-designed, really basic, like just nothing but text weather app. And it would say things like, it's fucking raining, you know, or just, we just tell it like straight like it is and wouldn't be fancy. And like, he made like a million or two dollars from this like weather app just because he went against the grain. And MakerPad learned to build things without code when everybody's saying we should all learn how to code. Indie hackers learn how to build a startup without raising money when everyone's saying you need to raise money, et cetera. Like, there's a huge payoff in like taking these contrarian bets, but also like it's so risky because you just don't hear about like all the tens of thousands of stories of people who just bet, who bet wrong. Sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong. I was, I tried to do like, I called it like the app store for bots. When like Facebook bots and Slack bots were like really hot and they were just coming out. I started with Mubs and, and Seth, uh, two other indie hackers basically, that was bot list. And I was like, oh, this is going to be huge. It was like, it's going to be massive. It's going to be this, that and the other. And like, who gives a fuck about bots these days? Like really, it's not like- <laughs> It just didn't work out. Yeah, it's just like okay, fine. That we'll draw that. We'll uh, we'll mark that one down as a loss. But you just got to keep going. I hate listening to podcasts where people are like, 
oh, it just sort of happened to be the thing I was interested in. And then it worked out in the end and all of that stuff. And then it sort of happens for you. And then you say the exact same thing. And you're the yeah. person you hate listening to on the podcast. So. so I read an article on um, Business Insider about Zapier buying MakerPad. And it claimed that basically you tweeted about different apps and products that are like the most popular on MakerPad. And like Airtable and Zapier were at the top. And there were a whole bunch below them. And then somebody else tweeted and they're basically like, Airtable or Zapier needs to buy MakerPad quick. Like, you know, they're fucking up. Like, they need to actually acquire this company. And Wade from Zapier saw that tweet and then called you because apparently he's just like trawling Twitter to find companies to buy. Is that true? Is that how he actually got in contact with you? That is actually mostly true. So, yeah, Walter Chen said, oh, yeah, Airtable, like tagged Airtable or Zapier need to buy MakerPad ASAP. So then Wade emailed me a link to that tweet. I mean, I replied to the tweet saying, oh, it'd be like picking between your parents as a joke. And then Wade pinged me that tweet and said, did you see this tweet? He's not wrong. Let's have a chat. So we had a chat and here we are six, seven months later. And do you know like what was going through Wade's head at that time? Because I assume he didn't like just then consider we should buy MakerPad. I assume like they've had conversations internally at Zapier because of it and they had their own process for it because you're literally their very first acquisition. That's not, not something you do lightly. I met Wade in person in the no-code conf in San Francisco, November 2019, it must have been. So we had dinner with a few other people. So yeah, just got on and, and talked about the no-code stuff then. And then sort of kept in touch. Zapier were, were a partner of, of MakerPads. So there was a relationship there. And Wade and I have spoken, follow each other on Twitter, that sort of stuff. But I've also spoken to Mike, one of the other co-founders, because he's like a product person who builds a bunch of stuff and experiments and I've tested things with them. So I knew some of the people with Zapier and from what I understand is Wade has been just eyeing up MakerPad for a while and seeing how it's been growing and seeing the, the community grow and the whole no-code movement grow and things like that. So maybe it was just a tweet to sort of say, oh yeah, let's like kick this into an actual conversation. So I'm, uh, I'm forever grateful for Walter and Twitter. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. There's like a... I'm sure you've seen the tweets about this like trend right now of basically like really big tech companies who are now trying to own media companies. And so if you look at like the long story of the internet, it has been 30 years of people figuring out new and more efficient ways to go directly to readers, directly to consumers without having to knock on the door of some gatekeeper and ask like, hey, will you publish our story? Because in like 1990, if you wanted to get a story out to lots of people, like you had to go find a reporter for Fox News or the New York Times or whoever, and they would basically say, you know, we're not going to publish your story, or we're only going to publish it this way, etc. Like you had to do PR. Whereas in like 2021, you have Elon Musk firing the PR team at Tesla because he can just tweet whatever he wants. And then you have like lots of these acquisitions where like Stripe buys Andy Hackers, HubSpot bought The Hustle recently, and Business Insider bought a stake in Morning Brew, like these huge newsletters. And now you have uh, MakerPad, which in many ways is kind of a media company. I mean, you reach lots and lots of people with a really cool message and educational content. And you have Zapier, which is this big SaaS company. And yeah, they've got a blog, but like a blog doesn't have the same credibility as like an independent media company like you have. They could publish stuff on Zapier's blog and it's really good and really well written, but it's like kind of tainted because it's like, this is owned by and written by Zapier. A huge bias there. Whereas if they buy you and they leave you alone and you're sort of run independently, you can basically make moves and kind of shift in the industry and people trust you and they don't really lose their trust in you. People don't even know Indie Hackers is owned by Stripe because Stripe like just doesn't touch it 
and we don't have a ton of Stripe branding everywhere. So I'm curious how you think about this. Like, what do you think about like, these like, this sort of movement for companies owning media companies? And how does it feel to like potentially be one of those media companies that like is now owned? We fall into that bucket, definitely. I don't know if we're a media company. We call ourselves like a learning community. And if it's, I think it makes sense in these SaaS companies buying communities. I think that feels like that sort of gets the whole bracket of morning brew, trends, all the hustle. I think we put out content that has a community that congregates around it. And then if that's called a media company or community, then like there's two sides of it. There's the product teams who get the product right and build a really good product and know how to do product stuff. And then they use community incentives and community things around it to help that product grow. So that would be Zapier. And they have amazing content that like drives people to go and eventually use Zapier. But the other side of it where we all sort of play is we're just focused around the content and the community experience of how people feel and what they're experiencing. And if if that happens to point them to a product, not one that we're affiliated with or like care which one, that's sort of a win. It's just like helping them figure out the product for them or what they need to do. So the alignment there is completely different anyway. There's ways that they can be paired up together and work Amazingly, like I think Zapier is probably our most used tool on all of our uh, tutorials and stuff, just because it is the product that glues other products together. As long as there is a true beneficial way that both can work like that and work independently and not be, oh, we're a Zapier company now, all you've got to use is Zapier and that's the only tool to use. Use whatever tools you want. We're not going to get involved in any of that stuff. And I think part of the point of MakerHub is we're not just teaching one stack of tools every time because that's not fair or right. I think that that would just tarnish it straight away and wouldn't work out the way ours all have. So you're making like 400 grand a month, uh, a year in revenue from MakerPad before Zapier acquired you. And you are also profitable. I have to imagine that Zapier just doesn't care about your revenue because this is kind of what happened in Indie Hackers where it's like, well... <laughs> Stripe makes so much money that the amount of money that I make for any hackers will literally never amount to anything. And I might as well just completely stop doing this. And like the only thing that I can do that's of value is just make the community bigger and better and reach more people. Is it the same thing for you right now? I don't think it's the same necessarily. I think there's like with our business model, obviously I've been up front with you and anyone else. Like there's a few ways to monetize this type of community, but which one feels right and which one aligns with what we want to do in the future. We want to reach as many people as possible about no code and teaching them that stuff. So how does that align with how we make money? Does that feel right? And I think with, with the Zapier acquisition, it's just, there's not a rush to hit revenue goals. Now it doesn't need to be, okay, next month needs to be 50 K then month after that needs to be 10% more and things like that. I think it's just, let's figure out how we can make this community as big as possible whilst having the same outcomes for the community. We want MakerPad to have its own revenue stream, have its own team that takes care of itself. But I mean, yeah, I mean, Zapier having 100 plus million ARR. <laughs> I know, right? Like, it's like, you're gonna, are you going to ever be able to touch that? Like, why make money at all? Why not just say, screw it, let's just be as big as possible? That'd be both of those things. I don't think what we did as MakerPad before, or what I chose to do, I guess, is stunt our growth because we had to make money. 
Whereas in this scenario, it's not that way around. It's let's grow as, as big as we can and like figure out the right way to, to make money in that scenario rather than, okay, you've got to hit revenue goals first and foremost. And that's the important piece. If we've got a team of five now and we want to get to a team of 10 and yeah, I mean, all of that cost could be swallowed in, in the Zapier, but I think it's more beneficial for us to feel like we sort of take care of ourselves. We're this independent company as part of Zapier, but we take care of ourselves, we do well, and we're growing, and we're still reaching that many people. And I would like to do that as the person running MakerPad. That's what I want to figure out too. Do you know very much about uh, Free Code Camp? It's run by this guy, Quincy Larson. I was talking to him a couple weeks ago, and I was like, how are you so big? <laughs> how are you reaching so many people? There's obviously a, a large movement to learn how to code. There's a large movement to learn how to be an indie hacker, and a large movement to know, like learn how to know code. And like they've got, I think, like four million email subscribers. That's a bigger email list than almost anybody that I know. Even these other like media companies, like the Hustle and Morning Brew, like combined, I don't know if they have four million email subscribers. Plus, they get like over a million people a week from SEO. They got like a forum. They're getting like two million visits a month. Like just crazy numbers. And I was kind of picking Quincy's brain about like how he's doing this. And like a big part of it was just be just being free. The the fact that like he's offering something that people are so used to paying for, but providing it for zero dollars like the the whole site's a nonprofit. it's funded by donations and like you can go and learn how to code and have this like cool bright future in front of you and you don't have to pay anything it was pretty cool so it's like there's it's hard for me to look at that and not be like hmm this seems like a model that you could use although no code is just so much more nascent there's so many people who are already understand the benefits of code and you have this like kind of dual responsibility where you have to like not only teach people how to build stuff without code but teach people that like you can do it and here's why it's valuable. And here's like what you can do if you learn these skills. It's like a, a whole nother level of responsibility. I think that's part of this whole, like, let's get rid of the no code piece. Or that's why I've disagreed with maybe how it's, how the term has come about because it's, if my mum is like searching how to build a website, she's not typing with code or without code. She's just typing, how do I build a website? So what you want to have there is the first thing is, use card or the next level up maybe use webflow and the next level up from that might be learn html and css like i think that should be the path so it's how do we get that across well and there's loads of things we need to improve at makepad of like what is it like the first thing on the the home page is like learn how to build software or like learn to develop software and i know that everyone like there's going to be a ton of people going what that's not what I'm after, but I don't know. I, I I struggle to figure out what that thing is to to get people in. But I think it should be as much free stuff as possible. And we we've got loads of blog content that's been coming out. We've got most of our content is free, so it's just behind a wall to like get people to sign up. And maybe that'll go away, and maybe we'll just be like, okay, you can just read this. But I think yeah, what we're looking at is. How do we get double, triple that content on there? Because you need to get that content in front of the people when they're searching that thing, which is one thing that Zapier does extremely well, is if you're searching for something in the tech world, you probably land on a Zapier blog post about that thing or like how to use that thing or whatever. So it's a case of, do we have our education structured in a, in a good way? And then I'll be getting in front of the people when they are like weighing up these options of how do I build a website? One of the things that happened when uh, Stripe bought Indie Hackers was 
because it's a community site, a lot of people feel ownership of the community. And therefore, a lot of people have very strong opinions about like how this should all go down. I'm sure it's the same with MakerPad. But like one of the big things that people you know were worried about was is Andy Hackers going to be able to be independent? Uh, another big thing that people wanted to know was just like what are the numbers? You know, Cortland, like you've always shared exactly how much revenue you're making. You've always shared uh, where it's coming from. Like what's going on with this acquisition? Like why is it all secret? Uh, what's the deal with your acquisition? Are you sharing the price? Like how much you got acquired for? Because you've always been super transparent about revenue numbers. I found this really odd actually because Sam Sam Parr did the same thing where he's like always really open about numbers. He talks about he always looks up people's numbers and and talks about it. And then when his announcement came out, he said, "Oh, you all want another prize? I'm not telling anyone. I'm taking that to the grave type thing." <laughs> but now I think once you've gone through an acquisition, I don't know that there's anything beneficial to come out of it other than people going, "Oh, cool! Now I know how much I could go. I could get my own thing for potentially in the future." I think that is there should probably be some sort of like glass door for acquisitions where okay this was a SaaS com- big SaaS company buys community company and it went for this much but I think if you're in an acquisition you go through all the lawyer stuff all the agreements and stuff it's just part of the process like that's just part of it so it's difficult to then if you're the one being acquired to then say I really would love to tell everyone about this number can I do that that's not your thing to do it's usually part of the legal proceedings so it's it's not that like people don't want to share it necessarily. I think it's it's probably the same with you, right? It's yeah. like I would have shared if I could have, but it's also like there's a second party there. Stripe's gonna make more acquisitions in the future. And like it's not like you're just sharing your own finances of your own business, like you're sharing like this transaction that happened with other people that like they might not want you to share. And so that's kind of what's missing from the outside perspective. Like they might think that like you're just being super mom and not sharing because you don't want to, but even if you wanted to share, like you can't really. Yeah, exactly. And then like if you share the whole purpose of the acquisition, there's like a tarnished relationship straight away. Then you're you're in a long term relationship with someone else now. Do you want that to start off on like a oh this guy can't keep his mouth shut, or they've gone against the terms of the deal straight away? So it's I don't think you understand it until you go through an acquisition that like oh it's not that easy to just say can I just tell everyone the number? <laughs> <laughs> and there are some times where people share the numbers and it's completely fine and like usually those are for bigger deals or deals where like people just don't care about the things that they're worried about. But like if I think about the reasons why an acquirer might not want you to share, uh, number one is because they have to do future negotiations and they don't want to sort of tip their hand as to like what they're paying for companies. Number two, this is kind of uh, potentially adversarial, but because they don't want you <laughs> to get a bunch of advice from people on like what you should have sold for, right? Because like I assume you had a negotiation process, you had a whole thing. If you go around telling everybody I sold for X and everyone's like, oh man, you should have sold for 2X. Like, how are you going to feel? Probably, you know, not very good. And then you might go back to them and it's just like, it's kind of like the deal's done, move on, you know, everyone be happy. So that's like two of the biggest reasons I think. And I'm sure there's more, but I'm curious like about your negotiation process. Because with Stripe, I also, you know, had this deal that came in that I wasn't really expecting. And I think it was like maybe four or five days from like the first contact that I had with Patrick to like, we have agreed to numbers and these are the numbers. So like super, super whirlwind tour. And like, I was just reading a lot about like, how do you negotiate? Who says the first number? Blah, 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 blah. Like there's not enough that I could have read. You know, there's never going to be enough where it's like, I'm a master at this compared to someone who does this for a living. How did it look for you? Like, were you practicing? Were you like learning? Were you just like, screw it? I got a number in mind. Like, what was your your process? So yeah, when, when we mentioned that and then we sort of had a brief chat and said, oh yeah, this is what we're thinking. Like, of acquiring you and we could do we can do this sort of trying to quite quickly have a simple agreement blah 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 
we went away and then I think we scheduled a call for like a week later. So that week is like the longest week of your life. And I'm thinking, oh, what are, what are the numbers going to be? It could be it could be this number. Would I be happy with that? It could be this number. It could be, would I be happy with that? And really you're just making up stuff and winding yourself up <laughs> like all week. And there's, there's no, no point there. But that was like what I did. And then got on a call and Wade said a number. And I was like, okay, cool. Then we went away and sort of did some thinking about it. And, and I was like, I was really happy with what was offered. I was just like, that feels good. But there's just a pro- there's just a process. Like my luckily my best friend since I've known him since I was like two years old, he does this for a living. He's like MA advisor and does a bunch of that stuff. So I, like the whole process, he was basically on call with me all the time. And I was like, what do I do? Do I just say, yeah, that sounds good. Do I say no, I want more. Do you start like throwing out what you want in employment? Do you start saying stuff about your team? Do you start saying like, yeah. when do you do and what thing? And yeah, I was just like learning as I went. There was a back and forth a bit of, oh, actually, I think depending on how you look at numbers, when you look at them, it could be higher, could be lower. Like you sort of just play that game. And I think, I don't know if you felt like this, but I think everyone feels like, no, my deal's different. Like, it's not going to be complicated like everyone else is. It's going to be straightforward. Me and the, like, acquiring CEO, like, we get on really well. So I'm sure that we're just, like, there'll be a one-page document. We'll both sign it. It'll be fine. It'll be done in, like, a week. And then it's just not that at all. It's just the same thing for everyone. It takes months and things get in the way. Things change. Lawyers are telling you one thing you read that as one thing and then you speak to like the other company and you're like, Oh no, this is what we both thought it was. It's like a crazy game of telephone where it's like, you talk to each other, you agree, you tell the lawyers, lawyers talk to each other. And it's a completely different message that gets into the thing. And like that whole process just took two days. And now you got to like go redo it. And there's some other translation error. It's kind of comical. And it's still like the, it's like the legalese, everything's going to be translated into the, the legal terms. And every time I'm just like, right, can you guys just explain this like I'm five years old? Explain me exactly why this is an issue. But the, the, one of the few things I took away from this whole experience was remember to keep on having contact with the person who is on the other end. So like Wade and I having conversations really helped because we were talking about like, what's going to happen after? What are the things we want to do? And what's the vision? And what's, what's that cool stuff? Like I know lawyers are lawyers and they're speaking to each other so there's obviously like back and forth and it's it might be seem heated over there but us on this side we're the ones still really excited and we've got to work together after this so as long as you stay on that level i think is just keeps reminding you like oh yeah this is just lawyers talking to lawyers don't need to worry about it so much and another thing was you're an entrepreneur like if you're in that position it's your company you're an entrepreneur so you always think the best of something like you're thinking of the best case scenario all of the time, because otherwise you wouldn't be an entrepreneur. But lawyers are thinking of what happens in the worst case scenario in this deal. So like for you to have someone who's trying to protect you and saying, well, this could all go wrong in this way, this way, this way, this way. What happens in that case? What happens in that case? And I'm thinking, yeah, but it's all going to go fine. Like it'll, <laughs> it'll be fine. And hopefully, obviously you hope that it will all be fine. But it's just one of those weird games or weird things in your head. You've got to sort of draw a line and say, okay, I understand that I've got to consider these things because that's the lawyer's way of thinking, but I'm assuming the best, which is fine. 
but just remember that there's different parts of this. There's a lot of times where you see companies being just like real assholes about stuff. And what's really going on is that there's just like lawyers at the company who are like, you must do things this way or we might get sued. And it's the same thing if you're going through like an acquisition, you know, like your lawyers are just like imagining the worst possible case scenario and painting this terrible picture. And you're like, yeah, but there's no way like Wade's going to like take my company and then send an assassin to my house and like shank me. Like that's not going to happen. But your lawyer's got like every detail for every single thing. And so at some point you just got to draw the line and be like, I'm not worried about this. Let's just move forward. Otherwise it could take forever. And like your lawyer's incentives are to just like not do that. Their incentive is to make sure you're extremely well protected, that no one can ever say that they didn't do a good job with you. And that also it takes as long as possible because, because they're charging by the hour. So like, who cares? So an another thing that happened in um, my acquisition that still happens today, literally someone had a, a Twitter post about it earlier this week, is like people will try to guess how much you get acquired for because you're not sharing. So I'm going to do that, even though I know you're not going to confirm. Uh, I just think it's fun to do. So... The first thing I think people don't realize about these deals is everybody thinks that there's just like a single number. Oh, you know, you got acquired, it's X. But in reality, it's like it's usually more complex than that. Like, are you getting cash or are you getting stock? If you're getting stock, is it going to vest over time? Does it vest over four years, over two years, quarterly for the next three years? Like all these different like numbers that matter. And then like, do you have milestones and metrics that you need to hit, et cetera, et cetera. So I would guess for MakerPad that you raised funding last year, right? Like you've actually raised from some investors. Yeah. So you're not entirely bootstrapped. Probably since it was a seed round, you raised like a one or $2 million valuation. And probably to make you happy, if Wade threw out a number and you felt good, it's probably somewhere around at least double that, maybe triple that or something. So I would guess that you got acquired for somewhere between three to $6 million. Lots of it will probably be in Zapier stock, which I think is probably a good bet. And that... Since they want you to get bigger, there might be some milestones attached to that, but maybe not. And this is where you make a poker face, and I, I see if I'm right. We'll never know. <laughs> what about if I guess your deal? You could do the same <laughs> thing if you want. <laughs> <Not capable. laughs> no. But it is kind of cool to have Zapier stock. I mean, they just got, what, like a $5 billion version, which is absolutely nuts because they're like the indie hackerist of indie hacker companies. Like they raised a little bit of money like a whole bunch of years ago. And they just like said, screw you to investors, never raise any more money ever again. And they finally just let some investors in. And it's like, no, Zapier is not worth like a few million dollars. Like Zapier is one of like the premier unicorn companies in the world. It's pretty nuts. So if I were you, I would uh, pro probably take the stock. Zapier is a phenomenal company. And that's one of the conversations I had with Wade and the other co-founders. It's just like, I just like that you do stuff weird. You do stuff that isn't in the playbook of... Silicon Valley startup stuff, and I'm the same. I do stuff weird. I like that we both do weird stuff. You know, there was a thread on Hacker News where people were talking about this $5 billion Zapier summary valuation. And it's like the typical Hacker News thread. You know, people are saying, I don't understand why anyone would pay $5 billion for this, etc. I have my own thoughts. Like, I'm very bullish on Zapier. I think it's got, what, 3,000 apps that are connected to it. It's got like more integrations than almost anybody. That's a huge moat. It's very hard for anybody to catch up to that. It's not like build your entire app on Zapier. It's kind of like, we'll help you connect stuff and do things in the background. It's kind of like the glue that holds apps together, which is really cool because it means that like Zapier doesn't necessarily directly compete with things that let you build a website. Like you can build all those other things and still use Zapier to like make it so that when somebody adds a row to a Google sheet that it sends an email to someone else, et cetera. And so like, there's really never a reason to stop using Zapier because you're using something else for the most part. 
And I think culturally, you know what you're saying about how they do things differently. Like they've been a remote company since the beginning, I think. And everybody like in 2020 was like scrambling to figure out how to be remote. And Zapier is like living 10 years ahead of everybody. And they're probably just flying. And so like, there's a lot to be bullish about. I'm curious, like from your perspective, you know, where do you see Zapier and the ecosystem? And why do you think it's worth investing in? Exactly that. It's, it's the glue that combines all the products together. One of those things that Makerpad's been hard to figure out is it's not necessarily a tool you could live without. Like you rely on it, rely on it every month. So for me, there's to run Zapier, there, uh, to run Makerpad, I don't run Zapier, to run Makerpad, there's my email marketing software. Like I need that. I need to use that every month. So I'm going to pay for it and I'm going to continue paying for it until I don't know when. I don't see ever having to turn that off. And with Zapier, it's one of those things like they'll email you or they emailed me yesterday, like one of our accounts, it said, this Zap has saved you like 28 hours in the last six months. You're like, okay, am I going to now start doing that manually? Nope, probably never. So yeah, exactly. You keep on, you keep carrying on. I'll pay, I'll pay whatever it is to, to save that time. I think it's one of those things that once you have a couple of use cases for it, then it's just, it stays in your product. And I think it, it shows their growth over the years of revenue and everything else. Like they've built a product that works really well in like the SaaS world of it's very, very sticky. Pulling all those tools together, there's everyone else is sort of trying to be the one tool that does it all. And I just don't believe that there is ever going to be a one tool that does it all. I know there's many who try and I just, people like different things and different teams work in different tools. And there's always going to be like at any company, some version of like a suite of tools. It's never going to just be, oh, this is the one tool we use for everything. Like, I just don't think that's true. So when there's more and more tools coming out of Zappy, it's just going to keep, keep getting better, I think. It's cool that we're living in a world too where there can be a ton of tools and those tools can be worth billions of dollars. Like if you go back to the internet like 15 years ago, yeah. kind of the the ethos was, you know, you've got to be the category winner. Like you've got to be number one in your space and number two has to be a super far distant second. Otherwise, like you're not even worth, you know, investing in or paying attention to. That's kind of like the VC mindset. And now it's like, well, there are a ton of like, I don't know, task managers and like Asana just went public and is worth billions. You know, there are like a ton of like no code tools and like a ton of just a lot of tools in every space that are like thriving because the internet's so big right now that like a lot of people can succeed if they have their own unique approach. And like, I don't think that's going to stop. I think we've got like the creator economy and we've got more and more indie hackers coming online and many ways like Africa and parts of South America and Southeast Asia sort of waking up and billions of people who like previously weren't really engaging on the internet are going to start. And it just seems like, I mean, it's crazy. Like there was a report yesterday, I think that uh, Stripe's got a new valuation of $95 billion. And like the entire, Stripe is like worth more now than the entire internet economy was worth when Stripe started. Just to give you like a sense of like how fast the internet is growing. And so I'm super bullish on no code. I feel like almost no matter what path you take, like you're going to capture some big part of it. And even if the term no code goes away, like people are still going to be doing this stuff and learning how to do this stuff. And more and more people are going to want to make money online and make a living. So I think you're in kind of a sweet spot, dude. So how's your life going to change? I mean, you've been through kind of the entire indie hacker journey. You know, you worked on a bunch of stuff that we talked about the first time you're on the podcast that like didn't really work out and it failed and you relaunched it and changed things. And then you built something that worked and you've worked really hard on it for the last few years. And now you got acquired. 
Does this feel like the end of the road for you? Does it feel like the beginning? Does it feel like anything's going to change? You know, are you going to go out and make a big purchase? What's what's different for you? Yeah, and again, it's one of those things that you listen to podcasts and you expect someone to say, oh, my life changed overnight and it was like this crazy thing happened. But I'm still sat in my little room <laughs> of just like doing the same stuff. Um, but yeah, there's like, there'll be lifestyle changes that happen. We could buy a house and things like that, which is amazing. But yeah, personally, I think I'm still just mostly the same. My girlfriend might want a few presents and stuff and the <laughs> wedding can finally go ahead without worrying about it. But other than that, you're yeah, talking I mean, to me about your wedding last March when we were in Mexico city and it's just been a year, dude. Like it's been, do you have a plan now? Do you have a date? A fourth date. A fourth date. This is the fourth Jeez. date. So yeah, we'll I see. I think there's, a, there's something to be said for starting a company where it can make money and it can earn you your freedom and it can get you to the point where you don't have to have a boss and you're, you know, your life is comfortable. But beyond that, it has some cool effect on other people in the world. You know, you're not just sitting down making an app that can make you money, but you're making an app that's teaching people to develop skills to like change their lives. And so when you have this cool liquidity event where like you sell your company and like, you know, presumably you're rich now, uh, you're not like, well, I'm going to quit because this sucks. You're like, hey, I still have this cool thing that I'm really doing. And you kind of get to like the, the higher level of, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You're no longer worried about your freedom and you're no longer worried about your bills or anything. And you have this cool mission that you, you're excited to work on. And I've met a lot of people who have something where they've, they've sold it or it's gotten really big. And suddenly they feel super lost because like, I don't really want to work on this. Like it accomplished all the goals in my life that I wanted it to accomplish. Like I've got this money now, like I'm done with it. But I think it's uh, pretty special to be in your position where you built something that has kind of like the next level of goals built into it. So you don't have to like quit and try to go find out what you really want to do with your life because you're kind of already doing it. Having already gotten, I guess, to this point, what's your advice for indie hackers who are just starting out? You just nailed that where this is the thing that I wanted to do. I just made it the thing I wanted to do was build stuff with no code and just have other people who like it. It's it's just one, I just don't want to be one of those annoying people that says like, follow what you're interested in. <laughs> but I don't know what else to say from my experience. Yeah, there's a few things that you're going to be interested in. You just got to sort of pull that, pull that thread and see where it takes you. It might take you absolutely nowhere, but that's, that's actually part of the reps you've got to put in. Unfortunately is, some of that stuff just doesn't work out and there'll be a reason for why it doesn't work out and you've just got to take that on and, and figure it out the next time. But I think for me, it's just been, yeah, I've gone against what it was supposed to be, learning to code. And luckily enough people also figured that out and like realized that that's, that's an option and the tools got better and the community got better. But yeah, I'm, I'm bad at advice. I don't know that I've got it figured out. So I don't think anybody <laughs> does, but I, I, I think that... I've met a ton of people who's, who've have done the same thing. Follow your passion, follow what you're genuinely interested in. And then also prepare for the fact that like a lot of times it's not going to work out and you shouldn't get super discouraged. You shouldn't quit. You should just keep going. And that's what you did. So I'm super happy to have you on the show for a third time. I wish everybody could come on the show for a third time and, and talk about their smashingly successful acquisition. Uh, ben Tossel, thanks for coming back on. Cheers for having me.